It's the perfect pimple for Aviv to pop. Two, one, go. Wow. Wow. No? You said, I mean. Five, four, three. <laughs> and I can tell your heart's not in it. Two, one. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that makes you happy when skies are gray. Does it? I hope it does. I don't know. I hope it does. Hope it, well, who's to say? My name is Aviv Rubenstein. I host this podcast alongside. The fabulous Lindsay Tucker. The fab. You should let other people say that. About you. <laughs> uh, the fabulous Lindsay Tucker. This is a show where we do deep dives into some of your favorite songs, old songs, new songs, long songs, short songs, good songs, bad songs. And today we're getting to our very first listener request. This is from listener Jenna, and she requested what song, Lindsay? What song indeed? You are my sunshine. Oh, thank you. But what song are we doing today? <laughs> That's the song. That's the song. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we had a, an interesting mailbag week. Oh, yeah. This was my favorite mailbag. This was your favorite mailbag? We have uh, some... <laughs> we some, had a lot of hate mail this week. Some feedback from listener, d- friend of the show, Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan the NASA can man. can fuck off. Dan can fuck off. Um, Dan says, here's your mailbag comment for next week. I knew Lindsay was it. This last week was our Armageddon episode. Here's your mailbag comment from for next week. I knew Lindsay was in for a rough go as soon as I found out Aviv wasn't running the show for the Armageddon episode. My first thought is he's going to ruin everything on this one. He knows too much. And didn't he? Uh, I He did. He being me, I did. <laughs> yes. Um, and why does Dan hate me? Dan doesn't hate you, but he did not appreciate you saying just brolin around. Why? I don't know. Go shoot something in this space, Dan. That was mean. That hurt my heart. Well, hmm. we also got an email from listener Amanda. The subject line is Aviv hates music, which is true. Seriously, every week Aviv mentions another artist he hates. Billy Joel, Eric Clapton, Fleetwood Mac, Aerosmith, etc. I'd like to propose that Aviv has to spend three weeks only covering artists that he really likes. I would love that. Let him ruin his own favorites for a goddamn minute. I'm mostly teasing, but Aviv is kind of giving off some snobby hipster energy lately, and I'd like to hear more about what he likes than what he doesn't. Thanks. Thank you, Amanda. So, first of all, it's not my fault. First of all, sorry, I had to cut off Aviv because he's such an annoying know-it-all with hipster energy. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I feel like the hipster energy that that Amanda's getting is different than than what is stuck in your craw, <laughs> listeners. I got as we were editing the episode, I got all, a bunch of all caps text messages from Lindsay, still angry that I knew everything about Armageddon. It's fucking annoying. Just let me do my show that I spent hours and hours that I didn't have <laughs> writing a script for. I think we we should just have a rule that if the song is about a movie you just got to tell me how much i'm allowed to know about the movie if someone says tell me the plot of the movie you don't need to talk about someone's teeth or you know all of the uh, outside things that have nothing to do with the plot of the movie oh god but they all matter it's not the plot does someone need to tell you the definition of plot Uh, film teacher okay listeners Lindsay (laughs) will be mad about this literally for the rest of the show i mean the rest of every episode of the show yeah the rest of time yeah so amanda for a couple things it's not my fault that all those artists suck second of all i would love to talk about only the music that i like there's a there's kind of an interesting thing that happens with like review podcasts not that we're specifically a review podcast but there's like this pressure to pretend that you like everything is there yeah i think so do you not feel that on like other shows that like talk about music like i'm thinking specifically of like another very famous show that does something similar to what we do which is Mm -hmm. and like he just like there's no qualitative judgment whatsoever from the host in that show right which is which is fine i i think that like I, I'll, I want to be honest about the stuff I don't like. However, 
I think Amanda's just salty because I managed to turn on her Amazon Echo Dot in her house via the SVU podcast. So, Amanda, thanks for listening. And Alexa, play Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA. Enjoy. Wow. As always, if you want to get at us, you can hit us up at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram or Twitter and for longer and weirder stuff. If you want to yell at me about all the things I like and don't like, lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. I think it's the attitude that you're right. That like, if you don't like it, it objectively sucks. I, I actually, I disagree. I'm not upset with anybody who likes stuff that I, don't, that I don't like. The only time that I asked people not to listen to somebody was Eric Clapton. And he fucking deserves it. True. Okay, moving on. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about everyone's favorite lullaby, according to PBS. The saddest song ever, according to many websites, You Are My Sunshine. I thought Hey Ya was the saddest song ever written. That's according to the internet. Yeah, the Twitter at, Twitter at large. So tell me, Lindsay, what do you know about You Are My Sunshine? It's, this is what we would call a standard. Yeah. Kind of. It's American standard. Mm-hmm. It's been recorded hundreds of times. Okay. Um, like Bob Dylan did it. Johnny Cash I, did I one. Meant, I meant the plot of You Are My Sunshine. Oh, okay. The plot. Well, you didn't say the word plot. The plot is that <laughs> you make me happy when skies are gray. And you'll never know, dear, how much I love you. So please don't take my sunshine away. Okay. So that sounds like, why is the sunshine getting taken away? Is, is this oh. like a very sad wartime song? Mm. You want to take a stab? So I'll tell you, that is, that is the chorus of the song, and there are several verses. I don't know any of the other ones. You know none of the verses? I don't know. Not off the top of my head. I'm not, that, that sounded accusatory. I, I was just confirming that you I cannot of think of any right now. Okay. Fabulous. So let's, let's discuss. You're My Sunshine, as you mentioned, has been recorded by more than 350 artists and translated into 30 languages or more. But... It's not really a standard. It's not. And the, the journey that we're going to talk about today is who wrote You Are My Sunshine and why it's not exactly a standard. Please enlighten me. Okay. Does anyone really know who wrote it? The, it this is, this is the, the journey that we're going to go on. This is what we're here to learn. This is what we're here to learn. You Are My Sunshine is a song uh, credited to Jimmy Davis and Charles Mitchell. Jimmy Davis recorded his version of You Are My Sunshine in 1940. So we're going to take a listen to that, and you'll hear the verses, potentially for the first time, you'll hear the verses of You Are My Sunshine. Some of the verses. There are more than in this recording. Yeah, how many are there? Five verses. Okay, and we're going to hear how many right now? I think like two or three. Okay. <laughs> The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. But when I woke, dear, I was mistaken, and I hung my head and cried. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. love you and make you happy if you will only say the same but if you leave me to love another you'll regret it all someday you are my sunshine my only <laughs> sunshine you make me happy when skies are gray you never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. 
told me once, dear, you really love me, that no one else could come between. But now you've left me and love another, you have shattered all my dreams. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are Song's annoying me now. You oh, really? I, I really like it. <laughs> how much I love I'm, tr- I'm, I'm serious. I think that this version is really, really great. My sunshine away. Everything in the background is great. Um, just his... His voice. Yeah, then it's the same. It's too... It's a little yodely. Repetitive and yodely for my taste. He he was he was a yodeler. So let's let's <laughs> quickly go through the lyrics and and you can construct kind of the story uh that you are hearing. And we'll read all five verses. Okay. So I did know this first verse. I I'm a big fan of the uh Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash version of this song. They do a duet and for whatever reason I really remembered the first Ver- the actual first verse of this song. Well, the other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken. And I hung my head. And I cry You are my sunshine My only sunshine You make me happy When skies are gray You'll never know, dear How much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken, and I hung my head and cried. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. I'll always love you and make you happy if you will only say the same. But if you leave me to love another, you'll regret it all someday. Which is something you you considered kind of threatening. I did. Um, and then you're my sunshine again. Uh, you told me once, dear, you really loved me and no one else could come between, but now you've left me to love another and you've shattered all my dreams. And that's as far as we got. That's as far as we got, but let's keep reading the fourth and fifth verse. Okay. Louisiana, my Louisiana, the place where I was born, white fields of cotton, green fields, clover, the best fishing and long, tall corn. That took a turn. Yeah. And then the last <laughs> verse is crawfish gumbo and jambalaya, the biggest shrimp and sugarcane, the finest oysters and sweet strawberries from Toledo Bend to New Orleans. You are my sunshine. So what up with that, Lindsay? It's someone who uh-huh. murdered someone Maybe. else over love gone awry. Then they got stuck in jail so then they had to sing about how they miss louisiana okay so right so there <laughs> seems to be kind of two acts of the song <laughs> one of them is this murder ballad <laughs> of of a lost love that you potentially you you lost yourself you lost <laughs> it off the earth and then and then just about two verses about louisiana right okay you ready? Yeah. Lay it on me. So, so James Houston Davis was born September 11th, 1899. So the day before you. The day before my birthday. S- Two Virgos in S- a pea pod. Same, same year. <laughs> and this is from encyclopedia.com. He shared a small cabin with 10 siblings and several members of, an ex- of his extended family. This is, he quoted in the Daily Telegraph of london the first christmas present i ever got was a dried hog's bladder and a plucked blackbird we ate the blackbird and played ball with the bladder i thought we were pretty well off what the fuck so already what what's going on 
people in the 1900s had to play with animal body parts. We were born in the 1900s. <laughs> um, people in the 1980s. <laughs> had to play with animal body parts. Uh, according to the New York Times, when a friend asked Davis whether his family had an outhouse, he say, he, he replied, no, we had outwoods. So he didn't grow up super rich in Jackson Parish, Louisiana. Okay. So despite his kind of humble upbringing, he did well in school. Quote, this is a quote from the New Orleans Times Picayune. I decided at a very young age age that my if my life was going to be better i had to get an education so he finished grade school as in the top of his class number one in his class his class had three people in it okay so good he's in the top third (laughs) uh he went to high school in winfield louisiana and then moved to new orleans and he carried his belongings tied together in a bed sheet like like all the time just everywhere? Just no, like... I think from Winfield to New Orleans. Ah, okay. Like an old-timey hobo. Just like an old-timey hobo. <laughs> to attend, he went to attend business college. He went to Louisiana College in Pineville, which was a Baptist college, and he worked his way through partly by singing and playing guitar, although he was forced to drop out of school because he was too poor due to lack of funds. He didn't have anything in his hobo hack sack that he could sell? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> other, than, other than a couple of strings plucked on his guitar. Huge bummer. Dreams shattered. This is a quote from the You Are My Sunshine, the Jimmy Davis story book. I had to start from scratch. Because we didn't have a library back home, I simply had no idea of how to use one for that matter, what, e- what one even was but he actually completed a, his master's degree in education at Louisiana State University in 1926. So he went back to school. So far, so good? hmm After graduation, he was a public school teacher, and he taught at the all-female Dodd College in Shreveport. And a year later, he quit teaching. He didn't like it, and he, uh, was a, he found a job as a clerk at the Shreveport like, Municipal Court. And he kept playing music. On Friday nights, he would uh, play on the radio, KWKH. And that's when a record label was looking for, like, they were looking for a yodeling country singer who could duplicate the success of uh, the blue yodeler, Jimmy Rogers, um, who was a success in Mississippi. Imagine that. Imagine that. So Jimmy Davis... His name was also Jimmy. He could yodel. He was a young, handsome guy. And so he emerged as the the natural pick and was courted by actually several record companies at the time. But he signed to Victor Records in 1929. So he dabbled as a teacher. He dabbled as a clerk. But now he's like got a record deal, which is weird for 1929. That's weird. Why is that weird? weird? It's weird that he failed at making money the normal way and was just like yeah whatever my like side hustle is gonna be it's it doesn't seem like he ever really wanted to be a famous singer or songwriter it's just something he did to like scrape a a few bucks together and that wound up being the thing that he got really successful at but you always make it sound like before the 50s it was just like easy to become a that is true that they they were they were given record labels out to any guy named jimmy who could yodel So, uh, Jimmy recorded roughly 60 tracks for Victor Records uh, between 1928 and 1934. In the words of country music historian John Morthland, the dirtiest batch of songs any one person had ever recorded in, hun- in country music. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. What's the worst thing he ever said? Well, we are going to listen to some of his dirty songs. Great. So he was heavily influenced by Tom, uh, Jimmy Rogers, the yodeling dude, and uh, he delved a little bit more into the African-American blues style, discovering a rich love of sexual double meanings and making them his own with songs like Tomcat and Pussy Blues and Organ Grinder Blues. Organ you want to listen to Tomcat and Pussy Blues? Yeah. Okay. Um, and this, so this was had he- a heavy, heavy radio play. These kind of double entendre songs. Are we going to hear both? Yes, we are. Okay. So this is Tom Cat and Pussy Blues. 
Went down and bought me a pussycat Got her in Montreal Went down and bought me a pussycat Got her in Montreal When that pussycat hit the ground You oughta heard the tomcat squall To yodelay Tom started to walkin' round and round These are the words he said Tom started to walkin' around These are the words he said Come on out, buy me pussy Let's get that little promenade Wow, so this song has like a blues chord progression and lots of yodeling. <laughs> there you go. So it's just a bunch of weird My kind of double entendres about a cat and a vagina. Got him up in um, so is he talking about prostitution? Good gal yeah, essentially, yes. Um, so this is organ grinder blues. In the song, the plot of the song is a popular anti-impotence monkey gland treatment popularized by a quack physician john r brinkley what so I, I so apparently back in the day this dude john r brinkley was like selling snake oil on the radio saying that if you used his monkey gland treatment either you ate it or you rubbed it on yourself i don't fucking know um it would treat impotence and so jimmy davis is singing a song about that about monkey gland treatment Mm -hmm. specifically (laughs) specifically ronald uh, john r brinkley's monkey gland treatment okay that's not strange at all well there you go sounds the same it's the same song it's exactly the fucking same that's right (laughs) what when i leave this town good gal I'm leaving on another line When I leave this town I'm leaving on another line I'm going way down south Hey, guess what, Amanda? I hate this. What's wrong with it? So many things. So yeah, a lot of his songs are just like fucking identical. Who ever thought that yodeling was okay or cool or fun or listenable? Whites, white people. But why? It physically hurts to hear it. (laughs) Quick round of does it slap. Survey says does not not slap. (laughs) So in some of the blues pieces, Davis recorded with a black guitarist named Oscar Woods and a few other African-American performers. And he became one of the first white musicians to record with an integrated group. So that's kind of big. In the tw- in the 20s and early 30s, that's big. How many people were in the group? I don't know, for sure. Okay. Not all of Davis's songs were risqué. He has a song called Saturday Night Stroll, which is non-sexual, although it is rather violent. Oh fuck. <laughs> Sitting around the house the other night, so I'd take a little Saturday night stroll. I got kind of lonesome, so I passed down Bull Lane Jane's house, peeped in the window and heard a boil in these turnip greens just boiling. Boiling some turnips. She said, Boy, if I ever get these green greens done, I'm gonna be a fat mama. Kids crying, run over chairs, run over benches, just boil these greens. So I'm gonna take them up now and cut them up, see if they're done. Okay, this knife crying. No, they're not done. I'm gonna put them back and boil them some more. About that time, I passed down by the old country church and heard them singing this song. There is preaching tonight, Lord is preaching tonight. There is preaching on the old campground. There is preaching tonight, Lord is preaching tonight. Lord is preaching on the old campground. Preaching is violence, I agree. I left that one 
went down by the old country dance and heard him singing this song. Oh, my father was a miller and he lived on a hill. Ground his corn with a free goodwill. The corn is in the hopper and the meal is in the sack. Hello, boys, just drop one bag. Slim Jim start doing this back step. Just prancing. Dust flying. Levi Fogg and just prancing. Then old bad eye gets his six shooting and starts shooting, trying to break up the dance. Okay. That was violence. Bullets singing, bullets popping. Boy, did bullets they singing, fly. bullets popping. Yeah. They got high behind. Went north, went south, went east, and went west. Went on to the house, through the house. So I think, house, you know, less fence, yodeling. Left gingham's calico just like talking about getting into a gunfight, right? Yes. Later in his life, people would uh, use this phase of his musical career to discredit him. But it didn't really work. Boy, did I run. I never have run before. In 1934, Davis moved to a different record label, Decca Records, and uh, he had his first real hit, which was called Nobody's Darling But Mine, which was, quote, a grim dirge with themes of suicide, and it became a country classic. So this, this murder ballad thing is like not something he's unfamiliar with. Sit by my side, little darling Come lay your cool hand on my brow Promise me that you will never Be nobody's darling but mine Okay. He joined this group of musicians from Shreveport at this time, uh, and they were going to try to create like a country version of Bing Crosby, like like smooth pop but country. Smooth pop but country. Yeah, and he had a couple of other hits. It makes no difference now, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so by the end of the 30s, he had married a Shreveport socialite named Alverna Adams. And Alverna Adams did not like his dirty songs. Oh, no. So <laughs> Dave, Davis was quoted in the New York Times as saying, I, tr- I, I try out a song on my wife, and if she doesn't like it, I rush right out and record it. Oh, I was going to say it's like Will Smith with his grandmother, but it's not. It's the, yeah, it's the, the opposite. exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. um, and they had a son, and they were married till she died in 1968. So like a good, you know, a good marriage, except for the fact that he would record the songs that she didn't like. <laughs> However, there was a version of You Are My Sunshine. So he recorded You Are My Sunshine in 1940, right? That's the version that we listened to. There's a version of You Are, you Are My Sunshine from 1939 mm-hmm. by the Rice Brothers gang. And the, the writing mm-hmm. is credited to Paul Rice. Okay. So let's take a listen to a 1939 version of You Are My Sunshine. As I laid sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. But when I woke, dear, I was mistaken. So this isn't like a who let the dogs out thing. Like this is exactly you are my sunshine. Yes, affirmative. So why did we just do this whole Jimmy bit? We're gonna we're gonna come back to Jimmy. So how is the song credited to a person who wasn't the first person to sing it? This is from a newspaper article in the Shreveport Times. On a day in 1939, no one seems to remember the exact date. Charles Mitchell and Jimmy Davis called the station at at KWKH to see Paul Rice, who was playing there at the time. Paul Rice's wife was in the hospital and he needed cash to pay her bills. 
Paul Rice, the real, maybe, author of You Are My Sunshine, sold the rights to You Are My Sunshine to Davis and Mitchell for $35. $35. So, so he could pay for his wife's medical bills. Shit. So in 1939. Tell us, how much was $35? It's $690.71. Shit. So not that much money. Not great. <laughs> not great, Bob. <laughs> so, a pittance, right? But no song had ever made that much. I mean, songs had made $35 before, but no song had ever made like a million dollars before, you know? Right. Paul Rice said, I wrote You Are My Sunshine in 1937, where I got the idea for it. A girl over in South Carolina wrote me this long letter. It was about 17 pages long, and she was talking about how I was her sunshine, and I got the idea for the song and put a tune to it. This is according to Rice. Uh, at least 20 people have claimed to have written You Are My Sunshine, and I had a gal write me from California that she wrote it. So this there's a big citation needed on this because... I, there are a lot of websites that say like, yeah, this unnamed woman actually wrote the lyrics to You Are My Sunshine and sent them to Paul Rice, but no one knows who this person is or if she ever existed. It's Paul Rice's imaginary friend. It's Paul Rice's imaginary friend, especially because there is an earlier recording of You Are My Sunshine by the Pine Ridge Boys. Did they know Paul Rice? No, they did not know Paul Rice. Interesting. In this recording, there is no author listed so this is from earlier in 1939 no songwriter listed this is the pine ridge boys singing you are my sunshine how can we verify for sure that it was earlier in the year but and still 1939 but just earlier like what kind of record keeping were we doing back then where we can actually be like yes we are confirmed oh i think the what they would do is date the recordings so they would like put the record in an envelope with the date on it now that is very imperfect but this is the this is the trajectory or the reverse trajectory of this song okay that the pine ridge boys were definitely first the lady. more yodeling i think my nana would love it though I dreamed I held you in my arms But when I woke, dear, I was mistaken Then I hung my head and cried You are my sunshine, my only, only sunshine You make me happy when skies are gray okay. So we've got we've got a good handle on the three earliest versions of You Are My Sunshine. And this But we one, keep bouncing out before we get to the Louisiana stuff. Okay. None of them have the Louisiana stuff. Okay. Just so, making sure. Uh, yes. So so we're gonna talk about the Louisiana stuff. This song, according to the Library of Congress, was written by Jimmy Davis, even though it it was proven that Jimmy Davis and Charles Mitchell bought the song from Paul Rice. And according to a bunch of articles, it keeps saying like this was really common at the time that people would like sell their authorship rights wholesale to other people. Okay. This is from uh, a magazine called 64 Parishes, Jimmy Davis, the Sunshine Governor. Governor? Yes. Even after the ascent of Ronald Reagan, entertainers who became successful politicians remain the exception rather than the expectation. There was little precedent in the era before Reagan entered politics for the dual career of Jimmy Davis, a country western singer who sold millions of records and was twice elected governor of Louisiana. Wow. The tall, quiet, spoken entertainer spent more years in music than in politics, but with his soft, drawing voice and easygoing manner, he warmed the hearts of many Louisiana voters, like the self-effacing character he played in such Hollywood cowboy movies as Cyclone Prairie Rangers and Frontier Fury. He gave the impression that he was less concerned with personal ambition than with help helping his neighbors. He sounds great. Yeah. So this, this article is like very, very... Uh, 
I included the first part of this article to to show you kind of what side of the argument sixty four parishes is on. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this version, in this version of the story, Davis and Charles Mitchell, who played pedal steel in Davis's band, purchased the song from Rice for thirty five dollars to help the the struggling writer pay his wife's hospital bills. And the practice of purchasing authorship credit for songs was common in the music industry in those days. But even if Rice wrote the song, it may not have been an entirely original work. Country music historians found traces of You Are My Sunshine in earlier recordings from the 1930s, including the refrain from a Hawaiian tune, which suggests that the timeless melody and sentiments originated in folklore before being shaped by professional musicians. For his part, Davis always maintained that the song was his own. However, this is back to me. However, when he was interviewed by a woman named Dorothy Hortzman for her book in 1975 called Sing Your Heart Out, Country Boy. Jimmy Davis did not claim authorship of the song, but instead related its history of popularity, that it was like just a popular song that he recorded. But he, according to the Library of Congress, wrote the song. Mm, that's something's not adding up. Something's not adding up. And he holds the copyright actually twice, once in 1940 and once in 1977. Quick question. The Library of Congress might be incentivized to credit Hmm. Davis. Hmm. Why? Because white people. Don't you? Oh, 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 Lindsay, you're smelling it. So although Davis, this is back to 64 parishes, although Davis spoke of bringing people, the people of Louisiana together, he was no different than most Southern politicians of his day in standing against the rising tide of civil rights. Of course. Adamant in his refusal to concede the state's rights to the federal authority, he said, when the day comes that the sovereignty of states is not accepted as the law of the land, that is the day that the United States of America will cease to exist as a concept. Davis proclaimed that he was 1,000% for segregation and promised, quote, no retreat and no compromise on the issue. When he was 28 at his uh, at grad school at LSU, his master's thesis was entitled Comparative Intelligence of Whites, Blacks, and Mulattoes. Holy shit. So once again, 64 parishes. Uh, there's a reason that I included this first paragraph where he's like, oh, he's so, oh, shucks. He's as good as Reagan, right? So it's, I, I gave you context for this very next sentence, right? So his, his LSU's master's thesis was entitled Comparative Intelligence of Whites, Blacks, and Mulattoes. However, his stance lacked the viciousness of many segregationists holding high office in the South. David insisted that he would ensure that Louisiana's public facilities would be separate but equal, in fact, as well as in name. Quote, Right-thinking white people and right-thinking colored people know segregation is the best and only way of life in the South, he explained. Okay. <laughs> what year is so, this? So what's, what year did he say this? I yes. don't know. Deeply disturbing as usual. So Jimmy Davis was governor from 1944 to 1948 and from 1960 to 1964. So... I think that this was during the civil rights era because it said that other states were doing civil rights. So, like, I think it's from the 60s, but I can't be certain. But also, I want to refer back to the thing I said earlier about he was one of the first musicians to use an integrated band. And steal black people's music. Right. So, this smacks of someone stealing black people's music. Well, didn't we say that it might have come from Hawaii? So still a white person taking credit for something from a culture of color? Yes, but through several layers of removal. I think he wants to steal black people's music, not specifically one song, but their whole vibe, right? He wanted to include this blues style and, um, and raunchy songs that the black blues artists were singing, just like yodel during them and become really famous and popular right so this is like kind of proto blue-eyed soul weirdly all of the episodes that i've ever done are like kind of gelling together (laughs) right it's the perfect pimple for aviv to pop it is the perfect i there there you go So in 1944 and 1959, Davis ran for governor of Louisiana, and he used You Are My Sunshine for his campaign song. Of course he did. 
And the song became even more popular and was named the official state song of Louisiana in 1977. Ah. Virginia Sheehy, a longtime Davis family friend and member of the Louisiana State Senate from 1976 to 1980, introduced legislation to make You Are My Sunshine the official state song. So the reason that this is copywritten twice is that the original version was copywritten in 1940. And then the extra one with the weird Louisiana shit was copyrighted in 1977 when it was moved to make Louis- it the state song of Louisiana. It was probably written while he was campaigning, but that's when he held the copyright for it. So, like, let's just walk through what do we think the... Who just thought it was a good idea? Like, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just tack on some Louisiana verses at the end. Jimmy Davis. And then every, oh, because he was already the governor. He was running for governor. He was running. Like, so who made the call? I think he tacked on the Louisiana shit in the 40s when he was running for governor, but it became part of the official copyright of it in 77 when Virginia Sheehy, who was a friend of Davis's family, moved to introduce it as the official state song. Okay. So he added the Louisiana stuff beforehand. Yeah, while he was campaigning. Got it. In 2000, the Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, was released and lampooned Jimmy Davis as Pappy O'Daniel, a blowhard with his own radio show running for re-election as the governor of Mississippi. That character was also based on the governor of Texas from 1939 to 1941, Lee Pappy O'Daniel. But there is this scene in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The saggy bottom boys is going to lead us all in a chorus of You Are My Sunshine. Thank you, boys. Governor, it's one of our favorites. Come on. You're going to go far. You are my sunshine. So in this film, anybody who's anybody sings You Are My Sunshine. Mm-hmm. As a part of Pappy O'Daniel's re-election campaign. Davis lived to be 101 years old. He died in the year 2000, and he gave a number of conflicting... 101? Uh-huh. That's the, that's the, the most amazing thing to you? Yes. Uh, he gave a number of conflicting accounts. Like I said, he didn't claim authorship of the song to Dorothy Hortzman, but earlier he said that he did write the song or he owned the song. So who really did write You Are My Sunshine? For that, we have to go to Chronicles Magazine, which is a magazine of American culture, and a, an article by Theodore Pappas from November of 1990. So I'm going to be Theodore Pappas for a little while. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, you ready? <laughs> yeah. This is the story of Toru Mitsui. Mr. Mitsui is a 50-year-old professor of English at Kanazawa University. He's also Japan's foremost scholar on country music. In 1967, he wrote what some have called the first scholarly study of bluegrass, Burugrasuru Ongaku, which is bluegrass music in Japan in Japanese. And his 1971 book, Kanitori Ongaku no Rikishi, which is a history of country music. It was twice reprinted in Japan. Japanese equivalent of the official country music textbook, which is Country Music USA, which is uh, by Bill Malone. And he's compiled a, an 11-album set of recordings of re-recordings of Hillbilly artists in Japanese for Victor Records. Is Hillbilly not a derogatory term? The, 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 it's in quotes, so I think that's like part of the shtick, but yes, quote-unquote <laughs> hillbilly artists. I think hillbilly <laughs> is kind of a derogatory term. Okay. This, this article is from 1990. Okay. Mr. Mitsui has also traveled widely in the United States, principally for the general for the reason of general research. His 1989 visit, however, had a specific purpose. He sought the origin and author of America's most famous folk song, the one that George Jones once called the most perfect song ever written, the one widely considered to be the third best-known song in the world right after Happy Birthday and White Christmas, You Are My Sunshine. So the familiar story goes like this. The song was first recorded by the Pine Ridge Boys on... Oh, here's the, here are the dates that you were looking for. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the song was first recorded by the Pine Ridge Boys on August 22nd, 1939, and then the Rice Brothers Gang recorded it on September 13th, 1939. So just three weeks difference. Country music star and former Louisiana governor Jimmy Davis, along with one Charlie Mitchell, bought the rights to the song for Paul Rice, $35, late 1939. Jimmy Davis published it, and at the top, it said, Words and Music by Jimmy Davis and Charles Mitchell. Mm. With, and this was published with the Southern Music Publishing Company of New York on January 30th, 1940. And they recorded it on February 5th. And that's the recording that every country music fan remembers and the one that placed the song among the top five country music recordings of that year. And then the covers start rolling in. Gene Autry and Bing Crosby made separate recordings of the song in 41, and that solidified its status as an American classic. Neither the Pine Ridge Boys nor Jimmy Davis ever claimed to have written You Are My Sunshine, but not so with Paul Paul Rice, because he, as we heard, he claimed to have composed it in 1939. Mm -hmm. So, I take a little bit of exception to Jimmy Davis never claimed to have written You Are My Sunshine because he published it with the Southern Music Publishing Company of New York as Words of Music by Jimmy Davis. With his own byline, right? Yeah, which is like, okay, we're really splitting hairs here. As of 1990, there were still people alive, however, who remember hearing the song long before 1937. In particular, a mid-30s performance of the song by Riley Puckett. And what these people remember is the name of the musician with whom Riley Puckett and Paul Rice played with in the early 1930s. His name is Oliver Hood from LaGrange, Georgia. Okay. Oliver Hood was a soft-spoken, self-taught man of simple pleasures and simple needs. He worked for decades as a doffer in the local cotton mill before becoming a full-time music teacher in the 1950s. And he was, by all counts, one of the most popular and best-liked men in LaGrange, Georgia. His good looks charmed the women, and good nature charmed the men, and never did he hesitate to share what little he ever had with anybody in need. He was, in a phrase, generous to a fault. He was also the local sage, the person whom neighbors turned for advice. And considering his complete lack of any formal education, his command of the English language was nothing short of remarkable. Quote, I think General Sherman would have been very envious of Mama's ability to express herself in such a beautiful and original terms of force, he once wrote of his wife. I might add that it would make a bobcat's tail curl in horror at the elements of mayhem, which is evident in her exposition of the King's English at even such a minor incident as a telephone ringing. So he was an eloquent guy for no formal education. Okay. You can see where I'm, He's you can good see where I'm going hunting. with this. He is Goodwill Hunting. Another another one of Aviv's favorites. Uh, <laughs> Oliver Hood was also a master of the mandolin, which was the most he was made him the most sought after music teacher in town, and the host of a morning country show on WLAG in Lagrange, and the organizer of numerous bands uh, throughout West Georgia in the 30s and 40s. As the Georgian natives well remember, his home on McGee's Street stood as a virtual community center. Every Sunday afternoon, musicians from all around the area would congregate on Oliver's front porch to play and record their music until sundown. This was how Sunday afternoons were spent for some 20 years. If music was heard issuing from the direction of McGee Street, LaGrange knew it was Sunday and that Oliver Hood was home. Contrary to claims notwithstanding, Oliver Hood wrote You Are My Sunshine. Contrary to claims notwithstanding. Yeah, contrary to Paul Rice and Jimmy Davis saying that they wrote it or maybe didn't write it. Oliver Hood wrote You Are My Sunshine in 1933. He wrote the words to the song on the back of a brown paper bag, which his children still possess. And he first performed the song at a VFW convention in LaGrange in 1933. He sang it through a megaphone out of a hotel window. And he sang no less than 20 verses, most of which are lost. I thought they were on the paper bag. Some of it is on the paper bag. How much? How many verses do you think it fit on the paper bag? How big is the bag? Uh, it's not that big. <laughs> Over the years, he wrote hundreds of songs, as did his friend. To them, music was a not-for-profit not venture, an act of love, something that transcended commercial consideration. Never did the thought of copywriting their music ever come to mind. Never, that is, until You Are My Sunshine, rose to the top of the music charts in 1940. It was then that Oliver Hood began copyrighted his music one song too late. 
A poor cotton mill doffer doesn't easily quit dreaming of the fame and fortune that might have been, and Oliver Hood went to his grave dreaming of that fame. In 1957, at the urging of one of his sons, he wrote a song. He wrote and copyrighted a song called "Somebody Stole My Sunshine Away," a song about the theft of "You Are My Sunshine." Oh my goodness! A country western band in California was prepared to record the song in early 1959, but by this time, Oliver had grown skeptical and suspicious of all legal dealings, and he he refused to approve the necessary papers, and the contract was left unsigned until his death. What follows is the chorus from the little-known sequel, which was never recorded. Wait, it's never recorded? We don't get to hear it? No, it's never been recorded. Well, uh, get on that. I know. So here's the chorus. Somewhere the sun is shining, but there's rain in my heart today. There's no denying my heart keeps crying. Someone stole my sunshine away. Woof. The 1940 version of You Are My Sunshine was added to the National Recording Registry in the Library of Congress in 2013 for preservation. And what does it say? Says Jimmy Davis. Fuck. So copyright law had evolved dramatically since Oliver Hood's time. In 1909, the copyright duration was 28 years with a 28-year renewal. So 56 years maximum. But in 1928... Steamboat Willie by Disney came out, and Disney lobbied Congress to extend copyright protections for a century. Why? Because they didn't want anyone taking their their stuff, their their Mickey Mouse. But why was it just a hundred? Oh, I don't know, because I think that that was like an unfathomably long time for them. Okay. So they call this the Mickey Mouse rule. Okay. If the history of copyright extension is any indicator, it's unlikely that You Are My Sunshine will ever become public domain, which is why it's not technically an American standard. Mm. What's possible is that someday justice will be served to the legacy of Oliver Hood. Yeah. Uh, tell me more about Oliver Hood's lineage. He was white. Wow. Surprise, right? <laughs> that is a they surprise. stole from a white guy. However, it's not really what I was asking. Um, I was wondering about like his children and there, his estate. There isn't a lot on them, other okay. than the fact that his his children and grandchildren still have the paper bag. Okay. Everyone said he was super handsome. I, I get it. I think he's handsome. Um, but it's like kind of surprising to me that he wasn't a huge star. That he didn't wind up, you know, like had he had he had kind of some ambition to or some quote unquote business sense to copyright his music and like play into the capitalist game. We would know his name over Jimmy Davis's. But I got to respect him for not wanting to play that game. Well, he did. He was just too late. Yeah. He could have been an actor slash politician. Correct. But. I want to talk, the last act that I want to talk about today is, what is the deal with why we love You Are My Sunshine so much? I definitely don't. We as a culture. I definitely don't know. (laughs) So this is, uh, (laughs) my question is, what's the deal with sad lullabies? This is from uh, PBS, from a writer named Jenny Martyr, and the title of the article is, Why Are So Many Lullabies Also Murder Ballads? So this is from the psychology, like a psychology piece. So is it a murder ballad? Not really. I take a little bit of exception with the idea that this is a murder ballad, but she, this is the title of the article and she talks specifically about you are my sunshine. So, so I am vindicated with my theories that it is a murder ballad. (laughs) Yeah. Judging by lyrics alone, the lion's share of lullabies are not sweet and soothing. They are dark and creepy and macabre. There is an Italian lullaby about a wolf devouring a lamb until the skin and horns and nothing else remain, and an Andalusian lullaby about a rider who led his horse to water but wouldn't let him drink, and a Turkish lullaby about a mother mourning her baby after an eagle has torn it to pieces, karmic punishment for when the father fails to fulfill his vow of sacrificing three camels. That one's fucking weird. Here in America, we have 
Hush Little Baby with its broken mirrors, fallen horses, and mockingbirds that won't sing. Rockabye Baby ends with an uncertain prognosis of death or injury after a cradle containing a baby plummets from a treetop. And of course, You Are My Sunshine, the saddest song ever, according to PBS. Mm, I'm calling flags on that play. And and also, Hey Ya, the saddest (laughs) song ever. So why are so many lullabies about death, despair, and loss. As it relates to their primary function to lull a child to sleep, does it even matter? There's that French song that's like about, I don't know, like a decapitated bird, right? Alouette. Yeah. What's that about? Uh, I don't know. Chante plumare la tête. Yeah, talk, so, something about it's his head. I don't yeah. know, My French is real fucking bad. <laughs> um, Andrew Pettit, who is a ethnomusicologist and ucla lecturer says any song can serve as a lullaby provided it's sufficiently slow and rhythmic there are songs that are composed specifically as lullabies and then there are functional lullabies songs that are altered to serve the purpose people have said that lullabies are the space to sing the unsung a place to say the unsayable you're alone no one's listening and you can express the feelings that are not okay to express in society Mm. this is a quote from the pbs article i am not making this claim well i started to get into it i started to understand right andrew pettit says you can take any song slow it down and sing it to your kid to help them sleep his research has focused on lullabies from india and when his own daughter was an infant he sang the cowboy ballad i ride in old paint which is a woody guthrie and pete seeger song Research has shown that lullabies, when used right, can soothe and even possibly heal an infant. A study published in the journal Pediatrics in April 2013 found that live lullabies, as in lullabies sung live to children, slowed an infant's heart rate, improved suckling behaviors that are critical for feeding, and increased periods of quiet alertness and helped babies sleep. Researchers followed 272 premature infants in 11 hospitals and found that the music provided by a certain by a certified music therapist offered stress relief for the parents too. The study concluded that lullabies sung live can enhance bonding, thus decreasing the stress parents associate with premature infant care. Lullabies have also been studied as a form of pain relief. Dr. Mark Tramo a UCLA neurologist and lecturer at the university's Herb Alpert School of Music performed a pilot study also on preterm babies in the neonatal unit. He played lullabies to infants recovering from a painful heel stick procedure used to draw blood, and his results suggested that music helped slow the baby's heart rates and thus reduce stress. But the study sample was too small to be definitive, and he hopes to replicate the study in a larger population to learn more about the power of this effect. From a basic science standpoint, we want to know how music affects heart rate, Tramo said. But from a clinical standpoint, we want to know if music can prevent heart rate from going into a danger zone. As early as the 24th week of pregnancy, babies can hear a range of frequencies that include the human voice and most classical musical instruments. And this this is according to Sally Goddard Blythe, who's the director of the Institute for Neurophysiological Psychology and an expert in early childhood development. Mm -hmm. The mother's voice is particularly powerful because it resonates internally and externally, Mm -hmm. and her body acts as like a sounding board. And this is from her book, The Genius of Natural Childhood. Both before and after birth, the mother's voice provides a connection between respiration, sound and movement, an acoustic link from life and communication before birth to the brave new world after birth. It is that voice and that rhythm and melody of music that the youngest babies respond to, not the content of the song. Is it the case then that the words are as much for the parent as for the child? that the mother is singing as much to herself as the baby. Mm-hmm. Lyrics to lullabies, Pettit said, can indeed be interpreted as reflections of the caregiver's emotions. Right. I could understand that if you're, a, you know, a fr- like they were saying, you're alone, no one can hear you. You can sort of sing your own fears out loud. Yeah. So the, so what, what Jenny Martyr, along with Andrew Pettit and all of these other scientists are saying is... We're thinking that the, the reason that lullabies are often so bleak is because of the mother's conscious or unconscious fears of new motherhood or losing the baby or the dangers that this baby faces now in the world. Hmm. 
Driving this may be the closeness between the caregiver and the child. Quote, there's a special physical bond between mother and child for the first year of life in which mothers feel they can sing to their child about their own fears and anxieties, but in the safety and comfort of physical togetherness. That's from Blythe. In particular, lullabies embody a mother's fear of loss, says Joanne Lowy, who's the lead author of the April 2013 study in the pediatrics magazine that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And she's the director of the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine out at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Hospital in New York. Quote, this makes sense as the as the first infant toddler years of life are fragile ones. Rockabye baby, for example, represents the common fear of crib death. She compares it to breaking the glass at a Jewish wedding, a ritual that portrays the sacredness of love that can easily be shattered, if not docked and cradled. That's not what the glass breaking is supposed to symbolize, but sure. No, tell us the truth. Um, according to my understanding of it, breaking the glass is supposed to remind Jewish families of the destruction of the jewish temple and it is only when that temple is rebuilt that there will be the garden of eden on earth once again and did your dad tell you that i some rabbi told me that i think okay okay so here's the question has you are my sunshine become such a popular american standard specifically a lullaby because of a parent's fear of losing their child but i think probably everyone's fear of losing someone that they love However, but you weren't a, admittedly weren't a huge fan of the song to begin with, but you didn't know any words other than the chorus. Please don't take my sunshine away. Mm -hmm. So what about that specific stanza? You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. What psychologically about that little poem? is so we is such an earworm is such a cultural drill that embeds itself into all of our psyches and consciousness i don't know so i had a cat riley which may she rest yes riley was literally like i know this is just gonna sound like i'm a complete quack but i felt like she was like a soul sister to me and I fucking loved her. She was wicked smart, smarter than any dog I've ever had. And she was dying. And I kept thinking, like, please don't take my sunshine away. Like, I kept thinking about that song and thinking about that, like, because every single day when I, like, saw her, I woke up, she was in my face. Like, she made me happy to wake up. She made me happy to come home. And I knew that she was going away. So it's interesting that um, you don't like that song. And yet, this is the song that you remembered as your as a, someone or something that you loved was was passing mm -hmm. that there is this kind of plea that almost comes out of nowhere at the end of the chorus that makes it a different thing than if it was you make me happy when skies are gray you'll never know dear how much i love you and i uh, and i love you every day mm-hmm Right, where there is this kind of morose aftertaste to the chorus. So I, I don't know if this this question is answerable, but a team of psychologists say that it might be because of a parent's unconscious fear of losing their child. And that kind of translates to you losing your cat too, right? Yeah, there might be something to do with the fact that it is a plea and it's also that the person singing it or giving out that plea seems to be powerless. Yeah. And when you're saying, like, it's my sunshine, they're, they are powerless to hold on to the thing that gives them the most joy. Yeah, and what, what can we mere mortals do in the face of the sun? Mm -hmm. Right? We, we need it for life and sustenance, but we have no control over it. And when it goes away. Well, that's our episode for this oh week. Oh, my God. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's the end. Uh, what I want to go out on this week is um, when I was doing research for this song, Google five times out of ten was like, did you mean Len steal my sunshine? No, I didn't. So today we're going to go out on Len's steal my sunshine. I was lying on the grass of Sunday morning of last week, indulging in my self-defeat. 
So where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Twitter and Instagram. And for longer and weirder stuff, shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. If you want to give Lindsay shit for how little she likes yodeling, send it directly to Lindsay at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. <laughs> and if Aviv's hipster snobbery is annoying you too, we'd love to hear about it. If you want to listen to me know more things about movies, let us know at lyricsforlunch.com. <laughs> Um, and tune in next week when we will be doing this with another song. Is it is it too early to to tell them what song we're gonna do? Let's leave it a surprise. Oh, it's gonna be a surprise. Okay. <laughs> in the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Like and subscribe. Make sure you never miss an episode. Um, and until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying. Please, Please don't, don't take, take our sunshine our sunshine away. away. <laughs> <laughs>